Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our new Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I am your host, Jack Pitbrook, and today, as ever, I'm joined by Charlie Eccleshare and James Moore. And it's been another good weekend for Tottenham. Yesterday, they won 2-1 at Wolves in pretty horrible conditions. I was lucky enough to be there at Molyneux, and it was really good fun. It was a really exciting end-to-end game, uh, very, very difficult conditions, but it felt like a kind of classic Jose Mourinho win in the sort that we haven't really seen that much yet at Tottenham. After Lucas Moura scored early on, Wolves were kind of all over Spurs all game, and Spurs spent most of the game camped in their own box. Um, Adama Traore was getting past Vertonghen basically every time he went forward. Diego Jota was causing lots of problems for Serge Aurier. And this is kind of what happens sometimes with Jose Mourinho teams. They get forced back, you give the opposition the ball, and you hope that you'll be okay. And they were, right up until the point where Traore found the top corner for 20 yards. And yet, I think the like the beauty and effectiveness of Mourinho teams is that you don't need to dominate to score, you don't need the ball to win the game. And Spurs, having barely had a kick, managed to win it right at the very end after they won a free kick out on the left, brought on Christian Eriksen. Eriksen's free kick forced a corner, Eriksen then took the corner, Vertonghen headed it in. Um, so it, it was a funny game in the sense that Spurs spent so much of it defending. And, you know, if Wolves had been a little bit more precise in the final third, then Wolves could have won, you know, the 3-4-1. But they didn't. And it leaves you asking that big question after a game like this, which is, did Spurs actually deserve it? Well, also, it's one of those games, I think, with we need to we need more, a bigger sample size. But if this is something that we're going to see more of, Tottenham winning games away, from, you know, really tough games away from home where they haven't played that well, then that's an amazing skill to have. I guess the worry would be, will they get away with it if, they, if they're dominated territorially by other teams? But for what it was, I mean, it was, it was a great win and, and Wolves were a really, really good side. And most teams go to Molyneux and get dominated. Yeah, I mean, that ground has been a bit of a graveyard for the top sides in the last two years. Yeah. I think more or less everyone has gone there and been beaten. Obviously, Liverpool a couple of times. I think Manchester United a couple of times. Chelsea went there and got a very good result in, in September. But they were beaten last season. But yeah, exactly. And for Spurs to come away with a, with a, with a win, in those circumstances, are not not a particularly uh, you know pleasant afternoon weather wise. I think is a is a pretty good sign of uh, some newly rediscovered resolve. Completely, yeah. And let's not forget that Spurs didn't win an away league game between mm. Fulham away on I think the twentieth of January and West Ham away, which I think was something like the twenty something of November. November. Yeah, so that was a ten month gap. And now they've won after beating West Ham. They've won this one as well. And like, it's just. It's the sort of result they weren't getting. They wouldn't have got under under Pochettino, I think. You know, there's lots of different ways you can look at that. There's the way they defended much more deep and compact than they would have done under Pochettino. There was the success at set pieces, like Mourinho made a... Mourinho pointed out in his press conference, oh, yeah, recently we were really bad at set pieces, but now we're really good at them, both attacking and defensively. It was one of those... Like, Mourinho is certainly not averse to reminding Mm. people how good he is as a coach and what he's been working on. And so... I think it's totally, I mean, this is the kind of thing that when you say it, sometimes people say, oh, you're just being really reactive. But it's totally legitimate to say this is the kind of win they wouldn't have got two months ago under Pochettino. It was a very Mourinho win. The irony of that is in, in Pochettino's first season, you might remember, in, in kind of mm. around the autumn time, I think they had three or four away wins. Yeah, late goals. Uh, like, yeah, late Swansea, goals. Like, yeah, Villa. Swansea, Villa, Hull. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think, and I think Swansea was in one. driving rain as well. Yeah, and Ericsson yeah, skid Ericsson, a late winner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, it, you know, in all of those games, Spurs probably on the balance of play maybe could, perhaps even should have lost. That that's definitely something that's kind of gone out of their mm. their game in totally, the last yeah. couple of years. I mean, that there have been many times where they've gone away and won far more convincingly than that. But you do also need to win when you're not playing well, and that has been the thing that probably Spurs have struggled to do 
as much as anything else uh, in the first sort of third of the season. Something I found really impressive was uh, those tactical fouls. Like, if you think how infuriating that is as a Wolves fan when Traore, what was it, three players got booked for fouling him. And they're all those fouls where you can't get sent off because they're not that bad, but they're so irritating. Like the Dyer one where Traore is just charging forward and Dyer just sides him down on the halfway line. That's a brilliant tactical foul. And, and that nastiness, like City do that so well. You know, that frustrating tactical fouling and I think Spurs just they had that sharp that sort of smartness that cuteness yeah. that, that was another early Pochettino hallmark as well exactly like, the, the yeah. kind of clever tactical foul like yeah. in the middle third of the pitch uh, the, one thing I would like to highlight and I know our colleague Tim Spears has written a piece about the number of times that Adama Traore has been fouled I think it's been 20, 24 players have been booked for fouling him in, in 26 matches this season which is absolutely incredible yeah. uh, but Lucas was fouled four times and uh, which is the same number as Traore and the two players who made the most fouls and you forgive me I, I looked at this last night and actually forgotten which two players it was but they were two Wolves players with three right. fouls each so you know it wasn't one my traffic yeah but that exchange with Traore was amazing because he just he just scored so he'd been he'd been giving Vertonghen lots of problems all game going down the outside getting crosses in and there was that one moment about not, I think 67 minutes where he drifted into the middle got the ball from Jimenez drove forward Vertonghen was backpedalling couldn't t- tackle him and Traore put it straight in the top corner and I think Spurs realised at that point we've got to do we've got to stop this guy because otherwise he's going to kill us and win the game. And as Charlie said, there were I think within the space it felt like within the space of about three or four minutes. Well, the way they edited on match of the day, it was the three, yeah. three of them like I think it immediately. Was, honestly, yeah. I think it, I think they all happened within a very very yeah, short space of time. It was Dyer, then Alderweireld, then Kane. Yeah. I think yeah, I think it might have been Alderweireld first, first and then, then Dyer, then Kane. Kane. Three big cynical fouls, and also because the it was absolutely soaking wet, and because the pitch was so wet, I think Dyer. That you know, really fun thing to do when you're playing in the park, which is slide through the rain and kind of almost accelerate off the water mm. and then uh, clatter into Traore. And you could tell as well that this was not like as you guys have said, like this was absolutely not a case of players clumsily mistiming tackles. No. This was obviously targeted because you could say it because straight after Dyer and then whoever made the foul or Dyer and Toby or whoever would go and like do the kind of high five hand thing to be like job done we got him but the thing is like it did almost cost Spurs the game because that third one the, the Kane foul yeah, the, that that's led to a free header, kick, which it? Moutinho swung in side yeah. head in the near post and Gatsaniga had to save quite well and then Jota had a rebound at the far post which he put wide and obviously like if either of those chances had gone in then all of a sudden people would be thinking god it's like classic Mourinho they negativity yeah you can fat you know you concede space you eventually give away a goal you concede set pieces eventually you concede a second goal and which just goes to show that, like, the very, very contingent little details of a game do totally transform, like, your narrative explanation of it afterwards. Completely, especially when the sample size is so small, because, you know, this is what, Mourinho's sixth game, seventh game? So, you know, we, we are necessarily drawing quite big conclusions from the odd game. But when you've seen a long period where Spurs haven't been doing this sort of thing, it, it gives you more confidence to think this might be a longer term change and not just a, a fluke result. I think in a funny way, like a kind of a minor improvement and minor changes of this nature, are almost kind of more encouraging than it, and kind of Spurs winning every single game five 0 and scoring a goal like yeah. that sun goal last week in every single match. It's it, well, like, that's not like it's more sustainable, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah completely. And it, and it, it also, there's also this bigger question here, which is like the contrast between the Pochettino approach to defence, which was like what he called defending with risk, which, as in playing high up the pitch, playing out through the back, um, fullbacks going forward all the time. And the Mourinho def- approach, which is this much more like compact, deep, narrow 
defence, which is what they were kind of pushed into in the second half here. And it, it got me thinking afterwards, like, did Jose plan to play this kind of low block defence to as the best way to counteract Wolves and stop them from getting around the back? Or was he pushed into it? So I asked him actually in the press conference afterwards, where, like, exactly that question. Did you want them to defend that deep or would you rather be defending higher up? And this is what he said to me. No, I'm the problem is not my defence. The problem is my team. When my three attacking players, they manage to press them high, which was what we did in the beginning of the game. You could perfectly see in the beginning of the game our three attacking players pressing their three defenders. Uh, Sonny was not dropping back with uh, with Doherty and uh, Lucas was not dropping back with, um, with uh, Castro. We tried and we did. But against these guys, it's impossible to do all the time. You have... You try to be proactive and come with a plan, but you know that you, you are not going to be capable to do it for, for, for 90 minutes. So when they, they recover the ball so high, when they move the ball so fast, the two Portuguese guys in midfield, they are top players. Moutinho and, and Neves, they are top players. They move the ball fast. Uh, Johnny and, uh, and Doherty, they project the way they, they do. Uh, Adama uh, and uh, Diogo, I don't even want to speak about them because uh, I get tired just to see them run. Um, very difficult team. A very difficult team. So big, big uh, victory for us. So what Jose is saying there is that at the start they had this kind of 4-5-1, 4-3-3 system. Slightly different from what we've seen so far where Delhi was kind of with... Delhi and Sissoko were the, basically the two eights in front of Dyer, And then you had Lucas and Son kind of wide and high up either, either side of Kane. And those front three... Uh, Lucas, Son and Kane were pressing at the start, whereas the midfield was a bit more withdrawn, but they just couldn't do it. Like they couldn't, they were physically incapable of doing it for 90 minutes. And I did think it was, even though Spurs did have quite a lot of energy, I think in like the first five minutes, and I th- for briefly I thought Spurs were going were, you know, to have a good afternoon here. Soon enough, Moutinho and Neves took complete control of the midfield and Spurs couldn't really get out at all. Isn't it interesting as well, like the, cha- the change from uh, Pochettino to Mourinho? I mean, how willing Mourinho is to talk about these sort of things. And like, he's answered questions about individual players and where they play in a really candid, frank way, in a way that Pochettino just really wouldn't do. Yeah, as a journalist, like I, this is one of my favourite things about Mourinho as opposed to Pochettino. Like, 100%. I, lo- I love Pochettino, but he had this thing where he would get so prickly and defensive when you asked him about selection like the one thing he hated more than anything else was if you said why do you play Dyer and not Sissoko mm. why do you play Winks and not Dally? something like that and he would he would take it as he would take it like personally that like he would be challenged but he would also take it as if the you were insulting to the person who had in fact been selected mm. so he said oh no it's disrespectful not it's disrespectful to ask to ask why I didn't pick that person because what about the guys I did pick why didn't you ask about them and when you try and ask him to to kind of talk through his his whether it's selection or tactics or whatever he would never ever want to do that in public he would always want to talk in generalities mm. about about mentality and application rather than about the specifics of the game whereas Jose comes from a completely different attitude his I think his attitude is kind of rooted in I'm really smart I think about this in great detail and with great insight and I'm going to I'm going to let you guys in on my intelligence by talking you through my thought process step by step by step and that, I mean, as a reporter, that's fantastic because yeah. 
you get an insight into the thinking of the manager, which most managers don't give you. But because of Mourinho's, I mean, for want of a better word, vanity, his intellectual vanity is so much that he wants to... He can't help himself. Yeah, he can't help himself, but reveal... He's like, I don't want to reveal my genius to the world, but I guess I'm just going to have to. It's just overpowering. Yeah, and and he does it. And that's great because now I, you know, now I know what Tottenham's game plan was in a way that I wouldn't have done if it was Pochettino. At this point, it's probably worth highlighting the fact that Jack is now a fully fledged (laughs) card-holding member of the the Jose Mourinho fan club because he complimented you in a press conference. Yeah, I'm afraid I've, uh, I've turned already. So this was a press conference like maybe two weeks ago. I asked Mourinho about Deli Ali's role in, in the team with reference to something which we've discussed in this podcast before, which was when he was back at Chelsea in 2015 and he was talking about Oscar and he said, oh, my, my my vision for a, no, a number 10, that is the role Oscar was playing in the team, is a nine and a half with the ball and eight and a half without the ball. And I put that to Mourinho and said, "Are you trying to? is that what you're trying to do with Deli? Are you trying to have him be kind of like Deco or Schneider, which are the two players he referred to back when he brought this up with Oscar four years ago? And he said, man... You have a good memory. Hmm. And because I, like anyone, I, you know, all it takes is a compliment. And then he, he didn't call you memory guy. He didn't one. call me memory yeah. guy. But uh, yeah, all so it takes. So he forgot you. Pardon? So he forgot about you. I, yesterday. Yeah, yeah maybe. Uh, but yeah, now, now I'm just a, uh, yet another Jose fanboy in the media. I've changed. He even, um, the other day, on Friday, I thought this was really interesting, really surprising. Uh, we were asking him about, you know, would these individual players, I think we were asking about, you know, might Lachelso, might Foyth start against um, against Wolves? And he said no. And basically, irrespective of what they did in Munich, because the team for the Wolves game was decided before the Bayern Munich game was played. Which I think is really interesting because, you know, we I think you think as fans, well, what if, I don't know, someone had come in and scored a hat-trick? Would that that's just irrelevant? Do they not play regardless? But he obviously, you know, he had this plan in mind and he was going to stick with it. And Pochettino, no way in a million years if you, you know, you asked him that sort of thing. He basically told us on Friday what the team was going to be, 100%. We asked him about Juan Foyt and where he might play and he talked about that and, you know, the differences, you know, it depends, he was basically saying it depends what you want from a fullback. You know, if you, at the moment, he couldn't do the sort of Aurier role, but it, you know, it just depends what you're after. And Foyt is someone that you wrote about last week as well. Yeah. How do you... What do you see as his immediate future at the club? Well, it's interesting because uh, at the press conference, I was asking Mourinho uh, about players going out on loan in January. And, you know, I was in my head meaning more Skip, Tanganga, Parrot, th- th- that sort of profile player. And he answered me and then he, you know, he said, well, you know, but if you're just shy and you really want to ask about Foyth, because I read that article, so he, I don't know, maybe an athletic subscriber, um, he said, there's no way we're going to let him go, which is interesting because potentially there's a bit of a conflict coming because Foyth has said he, you know, intimated he wants first-team football and he's frustrated not getting that. And Mourinho, I think, was really impressed with him against Bayern and said, you know, absolutely, we're not going to let him leave, but will he get minutes between now and, you know, the the start of the transfer window? I suspect he probably will because there are quite a lot of games coming up. But it is difficult because Mourinho's got a very settled back four at the moment, which is working well. And, you know, it's not a part of the pitch where you rotate in the same way. You know, if we were talking about a winger, maybe there'd be more chance of that. But I think managers, especially one like Jose, are loathe to start rotating their back four. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be like a young, inexperienced centre-back in a, Marine, mm. in a Mourinho squad because the one thing we know about Jose is he loves his kind of big, experienced leaders in those key positions, just playing them week after week after week. He's not, he's not exactly going to start rotating, is he? What did you guys think as well? I don't know if you saw the kind of chatter amongst Tottenham fans of Foyth playing as a defensive midfielder. Like, I'm always a bit wary of that sort of thing. Like, it feels to me a little bit facile to, you know, kind of say he's good on the ball, yeah. so 
he therefore, in the same way you wouldn't say a fullback's really good going forward, let's play him as a winger. Yeah, I mean, the, the way you're good on the ball as a centre-back is very different. 100%. It's such a specialised position. Awareness in like, you know, like changing body shape and whatever else when you take the ball and knock it off. It's like a totally different skill yeah. set. Exactly. And, I, th- you know, part of the argument is that he played as a midfielder when he was younger, but, like, didn't everyone? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, but, like, you know, it's, it, it's interesting. I think the idea is that that's an area Spurs are lacking. Foyth needs more game time. He's good on the ball. Could that sort of solve quite a few problems in one go? But, yeah, I, I am sceptical. I'm trying personally. to think of an example where it's worked. Like, well, I'm... David Luiz was the one, yeah. remember? He was always cited as he's so good on the ball but can't defend, he should play as a DM. And he, he did a bit, but it was never was never great there. John Stones has done it a few times for City. And I think, has he done it for England? I'm not sure. I mean, Dyer's the one, isn't he, who, yeah. who's played as a centre-back and a DM. But Dyer looks like a defender. The thing is, when Dyer plays in midfield, he looks like a centre-back who's been pushed into midfield, a bit like Declan Rice, whereas... I just kind of feel like at this level, like you say, you buy specialists for the position. You spend millions of pounds finding someone who's spent his whole life learning that position rather than just trying to shoehorn somebody else in. But it is interesting, isn't it, the that defensive midfield area? Because you do look at the squad and you think, other than Dyer, that is an area where they're pre- like they've got a lot of central midfielders, but very few who you trust really to play as a DM. Certainly against a good team. Yeah, I mean, given Wanyama, I mean, it really yeah. does feel like even Mourinho doesn't rate him, or you know, injuries are taking their toll, or or whatever else. He just doesn't seem like he's going to really ever get much of a get much of a crack of the whip in the Premier League. Yeah, as you say, there isn't really anybody else other than Dyer, which actually probably could cause a problem over these next few weeks when you've got two Premier League games a week for the next three weeks in a row. Mm. Uh, and Dyer, as we mentioned last week, has looked a little bit a little bit leggy, given he's missed so much football over the last couple of years. You're asking quite a lot of him to come into the team and play in that that area of the pitch. Completely. So where do we think this leads us for the Chelsea game? Because Chelsea are in quite a bad moment right now. They've I think they've lost four of their last five in the league, and their only win was against Aston Villa. They've also especially struggled to unpick teams who sit deep and defend. Like that's exactly the problem that they had against Bournemouth on Saturday. They lack a bit of creativity and patience. But if you give them space to attack, I think they can kill you. So I wonder what, where that leaves Mourinho on Sunday. Like, do we think he will try and take the initiative, or will he kind of sit back, try and frustrate Chelsea, and kill them on the break? I mean, I, I suspect he'll go with the same team um, that did so well, or that you know has won the last two Premier League games. I mean, the the, the temptation wouldn't it be if you did want to close things off, you could play a four three three and you know replace Mora with another central midfielder. You know, maybe give him a bit more steel there, but. I feel the way it's it's going. I'd be I'd be surprised if he made any changes to the current team because the approach he will feel has, has been working pretty well. Yeah, I, I can't see him changing that side. I just don't really see that there's anyone else available who's going to come in and, and improve that. You know, either technically or tactically. What was quite interesting that I think yesterday was the first time since March 2017 that Spurs had named an unchanged team in the Premier yeah. League. Probably tells you quite a lot about how quickly Mourinho has decided what his best team at Spurs is. I mean, obviously there are a few players missing. I don't know whether or not he'll want, say, Lamella in his side when he comes back. Mm. Mm. But he does seem to have kind of established the players he trusts and the players he's a little bit less sure about. Yeah. Um, it also speaks. I think it also tells us something about like the difference between the kind of peak Pochettino years, where there was such a clear sense of like this is the best team and the best system. Everybody works perfectly well together, um, and this. You know, leading up to that point, basically March 2017 being basically the peak of that because Spurs were phenomenal at that point. And then the next two and a half years in which Spurs kind of never quite again had that same sense of like, of 
consistency, knowing their best team. There was always a little bit more tinkering and rotation, and I wasn't sure what the best system was. And then the better Son got, that made it harder for Delhi, and all those other stuff that kind of happened over what we, as we can now describe as this kind of back end of the Pochettino era. Well, and the, like, the nadir for that, I think, between the Brighton game and the Watford game, uh, that he made Pochettino made seven changes which, if memory serves, was a Premier League record for Tottenham or, or right up there. And that was the point at which you're like, OK, yeah. there's something serious yeah. wrong here. I mean, as you say, now there's kind of like a recognisable team. And you know, as a fan, you kind of have a rough idea what you're going to get. But more importantly, the, the players know the system and who they're going to be playing alongside and what the kind of passing avenues are and whatever else. And it all just kind of feels like... Those are, that, that's kind of like those small differences that will make quite a big difference out on the pitch, right? Yeah, for sure. Like the, the challenge is just when you have a really settled team is then that means necessarily that there are lots of players who aren't playing and you, and you have to kind of get that balance right of having a settled team but not upsetting anyone by never playing them. Completely, yeah. But if they win on Sunday, then they're going to go fourth on yeah. goal difference, um, which is an amazing turnaround given that like when Mourinho came in, fourth was very much the kind of aspirational target for the season. And now it feels like it's within grasp already before Christmas. They were fourteenth when he came in. <laughs> that is a, however way, however you look at it, that's a big turnaround. I mean, it, it's worked out very well for Mourinho, hasn't it? The fact that Chelsea have hit the skids at the yeah. exact moment he's turned up. It's yeah. almost like he's in Lampard's head already. Yeah, uh, I'm not suggesting that. Disclaimer: <laughs> uh, He is not in Lampard's head. That is going to be such an inc- uh, that that game is so so big for Mourinho at Spurs. I think we talked about this a little bit last week, but it really is a massive opportunity for him to like establish himself as as like, like a popular figure among the fans. If if Spurs win that game against Chelsea against Lampard, who Spurs fans really really hate for reasons I don't really understand. I guess it's a West Ham thing as yeah. well. Uh, that would just be such a massive moment for him. Uh, and obviously now you're factoring in the possibility of, of leapfrogging Chelsea in the Premier League just before Christmas, the opportunity to get into the top four, as you say, to achieve something or look like there's a possibility of achieving something that we really thought was impossible like a month ago. Uh, it is, I, you know, obviously it's not been all good under Mourinho so far. There have been a few things that have been a bit concerning, but you know, you can't argue with the, with the results and the fact that Spurs have climbed nine places in the Premier League table. Yeah. yeah, I think they're going to win. I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident about Spurs' prospects on Sunday. And I wonder if they do, if there will be, you know, Mourinho chance. You think, you know, a game just before Christmas. Yeah, I think so. Beating Chelsea yeah. to go fourth, that would be, yeah, that, pretty great. Yeah, I can see that happening. Yeah, if they won the game. Yeah. And then after that, we've as well as busy games over December, we've got the January transfer window to look forward to, which is going to be Mourinho's first chance to get some of his own ideas in the squad. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what kind of player they're going to go for. Um, I heard the other day that they're going to look for a new right-back in January, amongst other things. Uh, I think there's also a kind of pressing case for a new defensive midfielder. Um, what do we reckon? What do we think the priorities should be in January? I think I think the defensive midfielder. I mean, I, I, I've never been a particularly big advocate of Serge Aurier, but it, he has looked a little bit more comfortable in this system where he's been... I mean, yeah. he's basically been playing to his strengths a bit more. He's been a bit less exposed defensively. Um Obviously, you're still kind of asking quite a lot of Sissoko in that system to cover for him, which which he has to do quite a lot. But it does seem to have been working quite well in the last month. So that that defensive midfield position, I think, is look, looking for a long term. I guess what you're probably looking for is a long term partner for uh, and Dombele, maybe, or mm. you know, to play in a free with Dombele and Winks. Who knows? Uh, but that finding someone who can be like the midfield anchor man, I think, would be the key thing. I think that that's definitely a position that Jose Mourinho has really put em- big emphasis on in in previous teams and. I can really see that being where he'd want to kind of 
spend the most of his money if he has got any to spend. Yeah, that feels like a big priority for me. I, I think it's interesting with the fullbacks that now, yeah, Aurier has really improved. It's more a left back where it's a weird one because they have quite a few players who can play that position, but like none of them are that brilliant. I mean, like Rose. There's a problem because he's, you know, he's saying he wants to be there for another 18 months. Uh, I mean, until his contract ends. Sessegnon, Mourinho said, will become a left back, but he's not ready to do it yet. You've got Vertonghen who can play there and is doing a good job, but he's better as centre back. And you've got Ben Davis who's out for a long time. It's a bit of an issue then at left back, but they've. It, it's hard to justify making a signing, but it is a position you feel the need to upgrade on. I'm quite enjoying Vertonghen in that role at the moment. It, it was tough. It was really hard because he was playing at someone who was just ten times faster than him. Mm. Yeah, but uh, he did pretty well. Like he, I think he did well at like just doing enough to make sure that when Traore, like Traore, got in a lot of crosses, but none of them were very good. And I think Vertonghen was doing just enough to kind of put him off and make sure that he was kind of flinging kind of hopeful balls into the box or cutting inside to shoot on his weaker foot. I know he was at fault for the goal, which he should have stopped, but generally, I don't think he was. It wasn't disastrous. It's not like he was diving into a tackle, Traore was running around him and then had 10 yards of free space to go into. Yeah. So it could have been worse. And we've got a piece on The Athletic coming up soon about what Spurs should do in January. Uh, another piece you might want to read is David Ornstein's column this week, which mentions how Deli Ali ne- nearly joined Villa. Or perhaps, given that we are at the very, very end of this amazing decade, our Tottenham Hotspur team of the 2010s. Uh, Charlie and I chose the best Spurs team from the last 10 years. You've made a right mess of this, by the way. Uh, we'll come on to that in a second. Okay. Uh, we went for Loris, Walker, Alderweireld, Vertonghen, Rose, Dembele, Modric, Eriksson, no. Son, Kane, Bale in a 4-3-3. Uh, let us know what you think, James. Give me one second. And if you want to read this on The Athletic, you can get 40% off a subscription with the promo code SPURSPOD. James, what have we got wrong? Raphael van der Vaart isn't in that team. Where would you play him? Who would you drop? I would drop Ericsson. Ericsson. I'm putting big emphasis on the last six months. (laughs) But Ericsson, like, Van der Vaart was good for, what, a year and a half? Two years? Ericsson's been good for, like, six years. Yeah, but I think in a team like that, you need someone with a little bit of of aggression. And he scored so many goals against Arsenal. And he kissed an old lady that time. Yeah, I think our logic here was that Ericsson's highs have been similar to Van der Vaart's highs. And he's been so much more consistent. That was our thought process. Van der Vaart's a bit like, you know, he's, he's obviously like a really good player. You need a maverick in a, in a team of a day. I don't think you do. This isn't a maverick team. This is a machine. This team that we've built is an absolute machine. 4-3-3. You're never going to not get the ball off us. We, um, Eric's like... Two disciplinarian joint managers yeah, as well. Yeah. Uh, Roy Heavens and Gerard Ullier. <laughs> we've got... Uh, this midfield is incredible. Dembele, Modric, Eriksson. We would never not have the ball. We've got so much, like... We don't really have. So somebody tweeted us saying you don't you don't have much foot in in midfield, and that's true. We don't have like a Wanyama, Dyer, Sandro, Parker type. Although we, I'm yeah, probably have Parker on the bench, but um, oh, it'd just be so good to watch. And like Modric and Eriksson combining, like Van der Vaart isn't as good as he's not as good as that. Like he's not going to help you run the game. He's more just going to pop up in the final third with something. I'm not, he could be on the bench to come on to to change things if we need. That him. is true because he could probably only play about fifteen. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. yeah. Even in two thousand. Yeah, because we're going to yeah. press so hard. This is a really, really physically hard working team as well. That's one of the, another reason we had Ericsson in is he'll do all that running. Two peak fullbacks. Yeah. yeah. Of Walker Rose when they're at their with very Son best. And no Bale. Son and Bale coming and coming both onto their stronger foot from the inside. How good is that? I think Bale's going to knock the balance of that team in a, in a kind of... Well, no, because we start with him on the right, cutting in onto his left foot. And then when that gets predictable, we'd shift him out onto the left and he can go down the outside and do cutbacks for, like, Ericsson to sweep into the top corner. What about Lewis Holtby? 
uh, he could like make, bring the oranges. We'll cut the oranges into quarters and bring them out. Him and Sandro. Vincent Janssen was another one mentioned in dispatches. Yeah. Just uh, didn't make the cut. Who else do we have? We did like a banter 11 as well, which I actually can't remember. Who was in the banter would have been in that. I think, James, you were quite Cut, prominent yeah. in selecting uh, Stambouli. Yeah, Stambouli. Uh, yeah, Stambouli uh, Fazio. Fazio, yeah, Gilberto. Kirikes, probably. Kirikes. Gilberto, I think, was probably the previous decade. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I don't... I mean, was Gomez still there? Gomez would... Gomez is good, Gomez though. Is, Gomez, yeah. Gomez is legitimately good. Gomez is the other one that I would, like, 50% say you should have in the team. Over Lloris? Uh, uh, no. Oh, uh, so up front, we've got Clinton and G. We've got a front three of Janssen, Clinton and G, and George, Kevin and Kudu. Yeah, for the Bantz yeah. team. Yeah, that'd be really good. Because I mean, she's quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Vincent Janssen is not. Yeah, no. He, Big Vinny is not quick. Although he is bagging them in Mexico. Mm. <laughs> Someone tweeted the other day. He's got like a hat trick for Monterey. I think it's Monterey that he plays for. Yeah, Monterey. it is. Yeah, yeah. One of us should um, should uh, persuade our bosses to let us go to Mexico. I am. It, I am tips? trying to get that. But... You're pitching to me live. Oh, well, on the well, yeah. Have I scooped us? Well, li- well cause also there's us? Gignac. I think who plays. Um, Charlie Scott points out that Gignac plays out in Mexico yeah, as well. Yeah, Tigres. I think. Yeah. Like, you so know? you could do a kind of double Mexico hit. One love Gignac. I love Gignac. He's so cool. He just like he's like the kind of lad at school who was re- like the best player at school at rugby and then also like showed up in the football team as well. He wasn't like that good at football, but because he was so athletic, would kind of make his presence felt. And Gignac has basically done that and managed to play for France and Marseille mm. and had like a really good professional professional football career off of precisely the same dynamic. Uh, just just to, just to round this off, we also need Paulinho in the uh, banter team. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and who else in midfield? Paulinho, Stambouli. Um, hold me. Yeah, yeah, that's that, a midfield that, three. That, that works. Yeah, yeah. it's not honestly. quite as good as Dembele, Modric, Eriksson, but it's not far off. I'd give him a game. For yeah. <laughs> um. Anyway, uh, Champions League draw has just happened because it's Monday. It's Monday lunchtime here, uh, and we have seen that Spurs have got. I think quite lucky. I might regret saying this, but probably the easiest of the five teams they could have got. Uh, RB Leipzig. Managed by Julian Nagelsmann, who is a man that Spurs know very well because I believe they were interested in appointing a manager when they were considering what to do post-Pochettino. Obviously, that didn't happen. They went for Mourinho. But I know that Nagelsmann is still being spoken of as like a potential Mourinho replacement down the line. Although, of course, you know, that's two years, a very long time in football. And who knows where Tottenham will be then? Uh, it's also the Paul Mitchell derby. Uh, the former, I guess, was, what was his job title? Was it Spurs chief scout, sporting director? The guy who did the signings in sort of first half of the Pochettino era. Uh, obviously quit and now works for RB Leipzig um, and has built a, or has helped to build a very good team. Like They've got some fantastic players, yeah. Timo Werner, they've got Ampadu on loan from Chelsea, Upper Meccano, who's meant to be one of the kind of best young defenders in Europe. Forsberg as well. Forsberg. Forsberg. Yeah. Um, so it's not going to be easy, but it is going to be easier than Juventus or PSG. Yeah, what they are. I mean, you know, we certainly shouldn't like patronise them or disrespect them because they're clearly a very good team. But they're like massively green when it comes to like Champions League yeah. knockout football, right? Spurs obviously got to the final last season. I have now what well, this is the fourth successive season in the competition, and also now have Jose Mourinho as manager. That's a pretty good combination in terms of experience of Champions League knockout football. Whereas Leipzig, I, I kind of <laughs> don't really have much to com- to compare that to, really. Well, and also as we were saying before, like they came through a group with what was it, Leon. Zenit and Benfica yeah. so it's not as if they've been on this kind of giant killing run to get to this point I mean it's a very good Europa League group that. yeah yeah, really strong but um, for that but yeah so they don't also have like a massive giant killing pedigree yeah and you've got to make Spurs favourites right you, 
in terms of like individual quality and also like you say competition experience managerial yeah. experience Nagelsmann yeah. did so Nagelsmann was in this Hoffenheim because I remember seeing his Hoffenheim team against City in the group stage yeah. last either last season or the season before last season before, season before been, last yeah. and they were pretty good like they worked really hard they pressed hard they had Jolinton now of Newcastle United mm. up front but uh, City beat them I think I think in both games um, so he and you know Mourinho as we know has won the Champions League twice although I don't he's not really made much of an impression in it in his last few jobs I think I think the last time he got to the semis was Chelsea 2013-14 when they went out yeah. to Atletico yeah it would be yeah. Yeah. It would have been, yeah. Um, so since then he's found it pretty difficult although he has been managing quite a bad Manchester United team but, you'd, yeah, I think Spurs will go through. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because this, this game, the first leg will be kind of t- two months away. I mean, we're talking about the first month of the Mourinho era, like so much has changed. But yeah. we're going to see like another 200% of that before we get to this tie. So it's kind of quite difficult to say even what the team might look like, despite what we've said before. You know, if there's one or two players that come in or in January or there's an injury or he suddenly realises he does want Foyfe in the team or whatever else, things could suddenly look quite Completely. different. Completely. Yeah. That's why it's always hard, isn't it, Make, like making predictions when the draw's made for a tie that's yeah. gone months away. I think, I was looking as well at this, but I think the last five Champions League knockout ties Mourinho's played, it may even be more, he's played the first leg away and has generally, you know, tried to play for a draw. Uh, and I think has got a draw in all of those games and often you felt has been too negative and it's then cost him in the home game. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how he approaches it because the home leg's first. Yeah. So, you know, does he try and build up a lead or does he go for a similar strategy of containment with the hope that second leg can pinch it? The interesting thing there is, and it's hard to know how much of a factor it will be, but Spurs played, I think, at home in every round on the way to the final last season, certainly. Dortmund. Yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah every round yeah. on the way through. So they do have at least the, the experience of getting a positive result at home and then going away and doing enough. I, I don't think it's that. I mean, I know the, I think, what is it? like? I think it's high 30% um, You you if you play the first leg at home, you win. So obviously there is an advantage playing the second leg at home. But I think you can really use that to your advantage. Like if you keep a clean sheet in the in that yeah. home leg, you're in such a strong position. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Th- then if you score one, you're forcing your opponents to score quite a lot. Yeah, you're putting a lot of pressure. And then if you're putting a lot of pressure on an experienced team as exactly. well at home, exactly. There's then, that yeah, jeopardy yeah. of knowing any mistake and we concede an away goal in the second leg. They have to come out and play, and then you can exploit that. Yeah. I'd love to see how those stats have changed over time because, yeah, my, like in. I've got no evidence for this, but like instinctively and anecdotally, I feel like while traditionally it was better to have the second leg, the second leg at home, I feel like it's teams are getting increasingly good at winning by having the second leg away. That is by playing a kind of slightly negative, conservative, like counterattack and set piece game in the first leg at home, and then knowing that you can really exert the pressure exactly. when you're away from home second leg. And I think that's. I would. It would be. Int- I mean, we should do this as a piece. It would be interesting to like track the change of that dynamic over time because I. That's that's kind of how I feel. Is that yeah. teams? Yeah. Well, I, like Atletico, like a really good example of the team that do that. And I remember in 2014, in that um, yeah. in that game we're talking about, when Chelsea went to Atletico, and both teams basically played for a nil nil. It was the most terrible game you'll ever yeah. see. Yeah, yeah. But Atletico's logic was fine. Nil nil is absolutely fine for us. If we go away and get one, you're in a lot of trouble. And Mourinho was thinking we'll get the nil nil draw and beat them at home. Then Atletico won at three yeah. one. I was at that game at Stamp, not the one in at the old Atletico Stadium, but the one at Stamford Bridge, the second leg. And Atletico were incredible because they were so like organised and disciplined and rigid. And yet, as soon as there was any weakness in Chelsea, they absolutely went for the throat. And they, I think they won. Did they win three one? Three one. Yeah. 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 And, um, did Chelsea have Mark Schwarzer in goal, maybe. Yeah, they did. Yeah. And the, because but, there was that whole thing about whether Courtois would not be able to. Right. No, but yeah. Courtois was yeah, playing right, for Atletico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
on yeah. loan. And um, yeah, it was an amazing performance. And I remember like by the end, I think Mourinho was... No, sorry, I think John Terry and some of the Chelsea players were in tears because they sensed this was probably their last big shot at the Champions League, um, which obviously it has proven to be because they've not really done anything in the competition mm. since. Uh, and afterwards in the press conference, um, Diego Simeone came in and said to his translator, and he opened the press conference with, um, I want to congratulate the I want to congratulate the mothers of my players for birthing boys <laughs> who have such big balls that they are able to play in that way. <laughs> something like that. I mean I might, might have lost something in translation, but yeah, it was it was like a really it was an amazing moment. Uh, I, I I wonder as well with that what we're talking about the that it's now it's it's less hard playing the second leg away. Maybe as well the change from when going away there was a bigger much bigger differentiation between home the home environment and the away environment even th- and you know the travel was so much worse and that sort of thing and it was so much more intimidating and hostile and unknown whereas now things are a lot more sanitized so you don't really have that in quite the same way completely yeah that's why the away goals rule is such an anachronism because one of the main stories of european football of the last 30 years has been the kind of homogenization of european football like, there's no actual difference between psg and city and Real Madrid no. and barcelona they're all incredibly yeah. similar and that means that, like, it seems weird to kind of build in this rule system, which suggests that going, you know, playing if your city playing at PSG is incredibly unusual, whereas in fact it's very normal. It is, but I think the away goals rule is such a such a good rule. In spite of that, I don't I don't think it's necessarily fair. But what's amazing about it is it means matches going to extra time is far less likely, and matches going to extra time is a killer for knockout football. You see that in every major tournament gets to one all at half time or 60 minutes and both teams declare, you get so much less of that in Champions League games because it's so much rarer that you're going to have it dead level and go into extra yeah. time. I'm a massive, massive advocate of the away goals yeah. rule after, happened last se- after what happened last season. Before that, I, I oh, really what, wasn't the that the, uh, Yeah, the well, exactly. and the Ajax yeah. as well. Yeah. Spurs went for an away goals twice yeah. In, yeah. in the quarterfinals and the semifinals, which we ever but, grateful for whoever came up with that. But also in that, you get that thing which you don't get in football at all, where you can t- a l- a one goal turns a loss into a win. Yeah, yeah that's exactly. so thrilling. Yeah, that's really cool. So yeah, I mean, we again, we should do a piece on this, the, the defense, of the away goals rule, because it's become very like, uh, it's become like the, the fashionable view is not your view but my view, like the view that it's bad. But you should do a piece saying it's actually good. This is why it's good. Yeah, cool. Anyway, this is not a away goals. Pod. Like it's not it's <laughs> Michael Cox's. It's, it's, no, I feel like we're, that would be peak athletic. Our tanks are on Cox's lawn here. I think we should get them off before he's, he's, otherwise he's going to have a strop. Anyway, uh, thank you very much for listening. If you are still with us, Spurs fans, we will be back on Monday, next Monday, the twenty third, to look back on Spurs Chelsea, which of course is Sunday afternoon. Uh, thank you very much, James and Charlie, for your time. Thank you, producer Tom Hughes. Thank you, Soho Radio, for having us, and enjoy your week. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>